0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, a New York Times opinion piece by editorial board member Jesse Wegman said that debunking Republicans' baseless, self-serving claims of voter fraud was always a fool's game. Because the professional vote fraud crusaders are not in the fact business. Well, the suggestion of that seems to be that even addressing such claims amounts to giving them oxygen. But there's a difference between airing claims and training a scrutinizing or disinfectant light on them. It's actually really journalist's choice which of those they do. The spate of new election meddling laws proposed in Arizona suggests that looking away is not really the answer. But Trumpers loss in Arizona could also map a way forward if you are interested in that. Our guest is interested. Stephen Rosenfeld is editor and chief correspondent of Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. Also on the show, if you think the little guy is left out of Wall Street deals, well, you're not wrong about that. But are things like Bitcoin the answer? Is cryptocurrency a leveling force or is it just a different flavor of grift that plays on that not unfounded little guy frustration? Our guest gets at what's new and what's old in this description of cryptocurrency as the people's Ponzi. So Hail Mortizavi is a writer based in Chicago. His recent piece on cryptocurrency appears on JacobinMag.com. That's coming up. We'll get right to it. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. <music> When there are people transparently, fervently invested in presenting election results they don't like as endlessly arguable, ultimately bendable to the will of whoever yells loudest and longest, it's important that there be some evidentiary anchor. But when that evidence is provided, it's still largely up to news media whether or not it anchors public conversation. We are at a moment where corporate news media are unfortunately reflecting A.J. Liebling's view of the press as the weak slat under democracy, narrating, more than resisting, the overt decision of Republicans to shore up power by suppressing the vote. Beyond all of what ought to be sufficient human rights reasons to talk up the fight for something like democracy in this country. There are also journalistic, interesting stories there to be told. Our guest is on that beat. Stephen Rosenfeld is editor and chief correspondent of Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. He joins us by phone from San Francisco. Welcome back to Counterspin, Stephen Rosenfeld.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: When we spoke in early November 2020, Donald Trump had already announced, quote, as soon as that election is over, we're going in with our lawyers, close quote. The contestations, the lawsuits, the big lie propaganda were not unexpected, and yet they're somehow still startling. Um, And an epicenter of that was Arizona, where we read about Trump loyalists demanding something called a forensic audit, that did not go the way that people hoping to convince or confuse a wider audience into thinking Trump really won the state didn't go how they hoped it would. But a lot of listeners might know that upshot, but they might not know why it happened the way it happened. You watched that all up close and personal, and I'd just like to ask you to, to talk us through it.
1: Sure. The Arizona Senate. Republicans basically hired people who were known election deniers. And some of them had worked in Michigan to create these reports that claimed that votes were stolen, reports that were basically later debunked. And they went in to try to manufacture or result, manufacture evidence where they could claim that Trump won. What ended up happening was You had some progressives who were trying to go on the inside and work with Republicans and basically convince them and sneak documents out. And that was one of my sources. But you also had some retired election technologists who figured out that they could basically box the cyber ninjas in and show that they really didn't know what they were doing. And the way that they did that was they turned to public records, which are different data sets that accompany different stages of the voting process. And they use them to try to basically rebut and confront the most common false claims or cliches. So if you think about how big lies are built from lots of little lies, a lot of those little lies are these kind of dumb cliches, like 40,000 Voters were somehow manufactured out of thin air and ballots were smuggled in while nobody noticed on election night. And, of course, they came from China. You know, stuff like that. There's just lots of those types of lies. And, and, and they, they generally are voters were illegal or that a local election officials are cheating somehow and they're altering totals or that the machinery is being secretly programmed to steal votes. So anyway, I ran into people who used public records to basically refute these. And it wasn't the media, and it wasn't the secretary of state, and it wasn't the Democratic Party's lawyers, and it wasn't the election policy think tanks. And we could talk about literally what they did. But the point of all this is they came up with explanations before anybody else. Now, it was after Biden got inaugurated, but they showed, for example, in March, but this could have been done in November that there were tens of thousands of people who voted for a majority of Republican candidates, but they didn't vote for Trump. And that was several times the statewide margin. And these were basically from the wealthy, scenic suburbs. But nobody else did that. I-, I could tell you how they did that. And you know, they also found out that there weren't tens of thousands of fraudulent or made-up voters. And they did this by using different public records. And that's because elections have lots of little subsystems, and lots of stages. And if you know what you're doing, and you know how to work through this data, and these guys, because they were in this industry for years, knew that they could produce these very focused and simple explanations. So that's what I was reporting
0: on. Well, I want to ask, uh, there's so many questions out of that, but let me start with the human beings because listeners may have heard of the Cyber Ninjas, this company which apparently is just shut down, but they were brought in as supposedly election experts, they were people who had no expertise in this, but they were brought in as, you know, Trump dead enders who were basically charged with saying that uh, Arizona had voted for Trump. But against these cyber ninjas, we have the audit guys. And I just I just love the story of who these folks were, and what they did. And if you could just take a minute and say, you know, because if folks um, Google cyber ninjas, you're going to get a lot of hints. Um, look for audit guys, not so much. Who were these folks? And then a little bit about, you know, they didn't do something that no one else could do. What they did was something that no one else did. Right.
1: That's really, really true. And the thing is, you had a longtime Republican election data analyst from Tucson. His name is Benny White. And he ran for Recorder, which is the countywide local election official, and he lost last November. And he was the kind of person who always looked at voter lists of where the registered voters, you know, up to date, and then the list of people who actually voted. And he tried to compare that to make sure that there wasn't any fraud going on. There were three of them. He was one. The second was this fellow Democrat, Larry Moore, and he created this company called Clear Ballot. They're the only federally certified auditing company that looks at the digital images that are made after a paper ballot is scanned and uses them to match it with the paper and matches it with the final results to see if everything lines up. And what's great about that is you can, using computers, you can zero in on every single vote on every single ballot and you can see if it's sloppy and messy and then you can grab the piece of paper and look at it and fight over the real thing instead of something hypothetical. And then Larry's chief technologist, Tim Halverson, who's an independent libertarian, He was retired also. So the three of those guys knew election records. And what they did was Larry and Benny were talking. and Benny said that he was looking at his race in November, and he was seeing that um, a lot of people in Tucson, Pima County, which is smaller than Phoenix, he noticed that um, a lot of these precincts with majority Republicans had an inordinate amount of votes for Biden. But he didn't do anything about it. And all you could do is you could look at the subtotals because that's how things are actually generated at that level in the election results. But in March, he got together with Larry Moore and he said, let's really dig into this stuff and and go after these ninjas. Because what happens is these guys are coming in and they're claiming that they're experts. They have no idea what they're doing. And literally, we saw that in the spring. They were recounting the second largest jurisdiction in the country, Maricopa County, which is Phoenix in the suburbs. They were just ripping open boxes and trying to, you know, count stuff. And we're talking about 2.1 million pieces of paper. Anyway, what these guys did was they really methodically, they knew where to look in all these election records to figure out how to debunk these, you know, the small lies that become the big lies. So the first thing they did was they took a look at the final giant database or spreadsheet of every single vote in every single race. So if you think of like a chart that has 2.1 million rows, you know, it's 2.1 million rows deep and it's 800 rows across because you have like everything from school boards to presidents in a giant count, the second largest county jurisdiction in America. What you see on that spreadsheet, which is so critical, is you can see where people did not vote. It's the only record that shows what people did not vote for. So if you know how to do database searches and these guys knew how to do this, you could figure out where people were voting for a majority of candidates from one party but not from one person in particular. So they found something like 60,000 people in this is Maricopa County, Phoenix, who voted for majority Republicans but not Trump and about 15,000 people who voted for a majority of Democrats, but not Biden. So those are the Bernie bros. And then you can go deeper. You can even figure out, you can't identify people, but you can identify precincts or neighborhoods. So you can figure out where these people live You can go talk to them. So that was the first thing that they did. They came up with a simple explanation that tens of thousands of people who were loyal Republicans voted for most of the Republicans on the ballot, but not Trump. Now, that's a non-technical explanation right. where all you're hearing from election officials is, trust us, these are, the, you know, these technical explanations and things like that. Our systems are accurate. This was a different kind of common sense thing. Republicans have been yelling and screaming about voter fraud as a big excuse, made up voters, to pass all these restrictive measures for years. And the parties have the actual data that can prove that it doesn't exist on any scale that affects election results. Um, And they're not using it. But these guys did. They accounted for every single voter with the exception of people whose names are kept hidden because they're judges cops or domestic violence victims. So to me, this was unbelievably exciting and interesting. And it's it's a template that could be used because, again, the Big lies are built on top of lots of little lies. And these little lies are lots of dumb cliches. I mean, what are the dumb cliches? Oh, you know, voters are being made up and somehow, you know, casting ballots tens of thousands at a time. Or election officials are somehow altering totals tens of thousands at a time. Or the systems are being, you know, secretly programmed and no one's watching, even though everything is on video camera, especially after all the Russian hacking in 2016 or the attempts. So this is really low-lying fruit if you're willing to believe or look for hard data. Now, you know, a lot of people are not going to believe this. But I think enough people in the middle who are not cultists on the right or cultists on the left would actually believe enough of this and lower the temperature in the room. But, you know, that's always my hope as a journalist, that, you know, facts matter.
0: I want to just ask you finally about news media's focus not on those fundamentals but on the kind of shadows on the cave wall and you you address in this recent piece this New York Times piece that says that you know when it comes to these baseless claims of voter fraud well debunking them was always a fool's game and it seems to sort of suggest that giving oxygen to these baseless claims, that somehow that's the same thing as shining a scrutinizing or a disinfectant light on them. And those things are not the same. There is a role for journalists here, but it has to do with facts over narrative.
1: What ends up happening is that there's a lot of resistance from election officials for a whole bunch of different reasons to having people look over their shoulders. Yeah. They're constantly aware of how partisans will take the smallest things and try to blow them up and make a sound like the sky is falling. But there's also this resistance to releasing the data that they have or working with it or presenting it because they're busy doing other stuff and they think that their systems are are good enough. And all you have to do is look at all the lawsuits that Trump lost to show that yet they weren't able to prove anything. But you see, as one person said to me, a retired election official who I really admire He said, that's fighting the last war. Mm -hmm. You know, the entire election administration establishment is so concerned with cybersecurity. And they've been so focused on preventing hacking and all that sort of stuff at the expense of generating trust. So that the last war is fighting, is trying to stop Russia in 2016, that kind of stuff, instead of the disinformation that's out there, you know, in the age of Trump. Right there, that's the problem. So a lot of these folks don't feel like you can convince anybody who, whose minds are made up because they're cultists. But the thing is, I'm not suggesting we have got to convince those folks. I am suggesting that there are lots of people in the middle who are intelligent enough to make up their own minds and would welcome, quickly produced, easily understood, focused, you know, common-sense explanations right after election day. I mean, imagine if in mid-November, in states like Arizona people were able to sort of understand or be shown that, hey, there were tens of thousands of Republicans who voted for most Republicans on the ballot, but not Trump. What would that have done? slow down the big why We don't know because it didn't happen.
0: All right, then we're going to continue this conversation going forward. But for today, we've been speaking with Stephen Rosenfeld. His piece, Meet the Trio Who May Have Figured Out How to Save American Democracy, first appeared on newrepublic.com. You can find the Voting Booth Project and their work at independentmediainstitute.org. Stephen Rosenfeld, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: No, thank you so much. It's always
0: a treat. New York City Mayor Eric Adams apparently lost money on his trumpeted decision to take his first paychecks in cryptocurrency. Adams had proudly announced an intention to make New York, quote, the center of cryptocurrency and other financial innovations, close quote. But media reporting remains respectful, calling Adams' move an overture to the business community, though it has sparked skepticism. The tone is not, in other words, as though a powerful elected official were losing money at the dog track or betting on fantasy football, This, evidently, is not silliness, but some kind of savvy, whether lowly readers understand it or not. If you're trying to understand cryptocurrency, and the crypto in the name sort of discourages that, and its relation to real goods and services, you probably have deeper questions. Our next guest encourages such questions. So Hale Mordazavi is a Chicago-based writer whose recent piece, Cryptocurrency is a Giant Ponzi Scheme, appeared at jacobinmag.com. He joins us now by phone from Chicago. Welcome to Counterspin, Sohail Mordazavi. Hi, Janine. Well, I'm not ashamed. I will ask you straight up. Uh, the stock market is somewhat opaque, but we understand that it's ultimately linked to things that get made and sold and used. What relationship does cryptocurrency bear to stuff, to cars, to ovens, to sweaters? What is it?
2: It's a great question. I would probably start by saying, despite the name, these are not really currencies. Bitcoin was kind of started that way, at least in intent. But they really are just financial assets, and they get traded on down to the market kind of in the way that stocks would. But the big difference is that stocks are like legal ownership in a company, whereas cryptocurrencies are basically nothing. They're basically just digital cells on a spreadsheet that people trade back and forth. They're kind of like digital Chuck E. Cheese tokens almost, just in the sense that there's nothing, there literally is nothing underneath any of them. And there are a lot of cryptocurrencies now besides Bitcoin, and many of them market themselves kind of in different industries. But honestly, it's entirely speculative. All that's just hype and it doesn't really mean anything. They're basically just speculative assets.
0: Well, I already understand more than I did before. No, no joke. But let me just ask you what accounts for the imagery of cryptocurrency as being pro little guy or even revolutionary?
2: Well, I think that it's, it's kind of rooted in libertarian ideology to a certain degree the person who invented the Bitcoin network did so after the 2008 crash. And the white paper for Bitcoin actually kind of says that it's in response to the 2008 crash. And, you know, a lot of libertarians, frankly, have like kind of glommed onto this and they sell it as, as you said, like as being good for the little guy. But it kind of misses the mark because the issue with the 2008 crash was that the banking system was under-regulated. And this is kind of exactly the opposite. These are people who want to privatize financial markets entirely because cryptocurrencies, I mean, the one thing they do well is that they are decentralized. They are decentralized networks. There's no central managing authority, at least the Bitcoin blockchain at any rate. And that's just just like they're privatized money, privatized financial markets. And to me, that's like the opposite of what we want to avoid another like major crash.
0: Well, then what is the role of banks here? Or, or even more importantly, maybe what's the role of federal regulators? Are they just kind of bystanders here?
2: Yeah, so they've been pretty asleep at the wheel on this whole thing. I mean, we have a pretty non-functioning political system in general. Getting any basic budgetary bill passed Congress is nearly impossible. So getting actual regulations through has been been really difficult. I know in New York State, there's been some move to regulate cryptocurrencies and in particular, stable coins, which we should talk about in a moment. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like the DOJ has done investigations, the FEC, but everything is just like always a little too little too late. And we haven't really gotten a good bill out of Congress at all so far.
0: Well, what is stable coin and what role does that play?
2: Right. So this is what my piece in Jacobin was mostly about. So I feel like most people kind of guess that crypto is this kind of like shady thing. It seems like gambling. It seems kind of like a con and probably a bad investment. And it really is all of those things. But my piece is actually homing in, as DOJ and the SEC did, on stable coins and the Biden administration as well, I should say. And so basically there are two main kinds of cryptocurrencies that are actually in use. And I will get yelled at for saying this because people will say that there's all these different kinds. But really, there are speculative assets like Bitcoin people are trading on these markets. And then there's also something called a stable coin, which instead of being like an asset that's traded at different prices, is pegged usually to the price of the dollar. And so the one that people know the most about is Tether, which is issued by a Hong Kong-based company that runs the Hong Kong-based cryptocurrency exchange, mm-hmm. Bitfinex. So I know there's a lot of information it's I'm okay. dumping on you. Yep. But yeah, so these coins are pegged to the dollar and they're basically treated as dollars on exchanges because a lot of these exchanges are overseas. Real banks don't want to do business with them and they don't have access to, to dollars, basically, to facilitate exchanges on their exchange. So these stable coins provide liquidity on bank exchanges. But the thing about them is there's nothing stopping them from printing as many as they want, which is basically what's happening. You have these private companies issuing fake dollars on the blockchain and then sending them out to their own exchanges and doing basically God knows what with them. And there's nothing stopping them from using these fake dollars to buy Bitcoin assets. And frankly, that's basically what they're doing. And researchers have looked into this. There is a class action lawsuit right now. Also, this is all in the blockchain. It's all public. So we can see what's happening more or less. And so what my piece posits is that the entire cryptocurrency market is basically... A Ponzi scheme in which these companies are printing fake money to buy up assets and drive up the prices. I get a lot of pushback on this because people will say, well, you know, technically a Ponzi scheme is a specific thing. They're usually like investment funds that lure in investors and pay out new investors with funds from older investors. And the thing about crypto is that everyone kind of understands that's the rule of the game. So that's not really fraudulent. They know it's a speculative asset, a purely speculative asset. The fraud comes in because these investors are buying, thinking that prices are being driven by speculation when they're actually really being driven by market manipulation.
0: I think that's really interesting because there's kind of a double level thing going on, at least with the narrative around it, where it's like, yeah, this is kind of sketch. But, you know, if you get on the roller coaster at the right time and get off it on the right time, the money you'll make will be real money, you know, even if we realize that it's ironically, untethered from real goods and services, as people generally explain them. But what you're saying is this isn't even tulips. This is something structurally worse.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, people make money on Ponzi too. A lot of people invested with Madoff because they made a lot of money doing so, and so it fell apart.
0: Yeah. Well, what do you see as way going forward. It's clear, yes, some folks are making money, absolutely. A lot of folks are also being duped. And then even more folks are being confused, not to put too fine a point on it. But what do you see as a kind of harm mitigating way going forward?
2: I think the only way going forward is just to ban them entirely. And that's what other countries are starting to do. China's banned crypto entirely. India is about to, Russia is about to, and they all talk about issuing their own state cryptocurrencies, but these aren't going to be the same kind of all a marketing gimmick. The actual private cryptos are being banned in all these other countries. And I see that as really the only way because, I mean, these are private companies issuing these stable coins. There's no way we can stop anyone in, like some, in some other country outside of our own jurisdiction from opening exchange, printing their own stable coins, and continuing the Ponzi because Tether is not the only company doing this, even though that's the one that gets talked about. There are multiple ones. So, yeah, I think a full ban is the only way to deal with it. Because there are companies like Coinbase that are banked exchanges. There's like Gemini, Coinbase, a few other ones are mostly based in like the U.S. and South Korea. And these actually are regulated crypto exchanges that do have banking relationships. And these are functionally the cash off where people are actually exchanging Bitcoin or Ether or whatever for actual cash. And if we close these down, the whole thing will just die or die. That's really the only way I see out of it.
0: We've been speaking with Sohail Mordazavi. He's a Chicago-based writer, and you can find his recent piece, Cryptocurrency is a Giant Ponzi Scheme, at jacobinmag.com. Sohail Mortizavi thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. That's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.